podcast listeners. I'm Jill McCormick. And I'm Robin Wall. And this is Afraid Not Podcast. You are listening to episode number 66. Our guest today is the fantastic and captivating Vicki Banks, who is a personal longtime friend of mine. I'm so grateful to have known her and loved her since probably about the year 1991. And um, she has made a big difference in my life in living an example of faith, walking with the Lord, being passionate about studying God's word and leading women in the church to also study his word. So she is a real rock star and I'm just thrilled she came on Afraid Not. Vicki is going to talk about grief and what it looks like to walk through that, um, what some tools of what you need to do if you're walking through serious grief, um, continuous grief. So she'll give you some resources of books of how to make sure that you're looking for people that can walk you through that with you. So she gives us a lot of information about what it looks like to walk through grief and um, how that how that manifests in, our, in in ourselves when we're dealing with it. And uh, just a little bit more about her that is just fun to know. She is an author. She is a blogger. She is a women's ministry director in her church. She is a speaker. She is also a very happy wife and mom and grandma and just has so many exciting things going on in her life right now. So everybody get ready for a great conversation and listen in to our conversation with Vicki Banks. Hey Vicki, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh sure, I am super excited to be here with both of you. We are super excited to have you and we'd love to start with just an introduction. So Will you tell our listeners a little bit about Vicki and just the fun person and your, your life and kind of what makes you tick? All right. Well, my name is Vicki Banks. I am a Sooner born and Sooner bred girl from the great state of Oklahoma. Never lived anywhere else. Uh, I Let's see. So I grew up here in Oklahoma City. I went to college at the University of Oklahoma. That's really kind of where my spiritual life exploded. So I wasn't raised in a family that attended church. So really my spiritual heritage kind of comes from other people taking me to church. And then really what I learned through the uh, Baptist student ministry at OU, that's where I met my husband. We've served at the same church forever. It's the church I've gone to since I was 15 years old. So I have worked in ministry in all sorts of different ways over the years as a speaker, as an author, a blogger, a writer, a Bible study leader, a disciple maker. And for the last four years, I've been on staff as the women's ministry director at our church. So that's what I'm doing. Then personally, I have a couple of great young adult kids, a couple of young, a couple of, uh, my daughter-in-law and my son-in-law who I really enjoy. So I kind of, kind of got the cream of the crop there. I have two little grandkids. I have a granddaughter that turns five tomorrow, a grandson, almost three, a granddaughter who's almost one and just found out we're getting ready to have a set of twins. Wow. Bring on the crazy. We're just full on welcoming it right now. So that's what's happening here. (laughs) Lots of exciting things. Oh, 
I love it. I love it. I would love for you to take us to your college days and just tell us more about that exciting time in your life of really meeting the Lord and, and meeting your husband and how that all fell out. Sure. I mean, it is, it is central to my life now, what I do, how I do it, why I do it. It really all goes back to those four years right there. But I had gone to church camp with a friend when I was about 14 and had heard a preacher say that you should read your Bible every day. And I'm a good firstborn girl. I'm a rule follower. And I thought, well, if a preacher says it, that's probably something you should do. But that's kind of difficult when you've never seen anyone do that. You've never heard anyone other than a pastor at a pulpit or a youth pastor talk about the Bible. So, and I was hugely self-conscious, tons of inadequacy. So not, not confident enough to even ask somebody, how do you do that? And what do you do? I just felt inferior because I didn't know, but I tried reading, you know, regularly every night, starting at about 14 and every now and then there'd be something that, that I could resonate with, but for the most part, not so much. I just read it because I thought I was supposed to. So it really wasn't until college that when I got involved with the Baptist Collegiate Ministry, that really I was taught for the first time how to read and study the Bible on my own. I was taught how to lead Bible studies and ask good questions, how to disciple people. And it totally changed my life, like black and white to full bone living color. I mean, really dramatic difference. And just got a real heart for it. I think it was engraved on my heart, 2 Timothy 2, 2. I don't know how many times they quoted it to us. The things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men and women who will teach others also. And I hear that constantly in my head and in my heart still today. And it's been more than a couple of birthdays since I was there. We're just going to say, we'll just kind of leave it there. But <laughs> anyway, it was in that ministry that I met my husband, uh, led my first, started leading my first weekly Bible study, disciple my first people. Uh, so I have a huge debt of gratitude that I owe to the staff members there. It's the first time I ever saw women working in ministry was in student work at OU. And God started to really give me a vision of calling me to that. And I had, I'd never seen a woman, you know, be in any kind of ministry position in a church before. So I really had no frame of reference for how to do that in the regular world. But I certainly loved what I found there. And it's the first time I really passionately fell in love with something. I mean, I cried to get out of my seventh grade speech class. I was so afraid to stand in front of people. And now, you know, speaking and teaching, disciple making, I mean, I love it. I just found something that I loved more than I was afraid. And that doesn't mean I don't still deal with in feelings of inadequacy and stuff. I mean, I am a girl after all. So they, they <laughs> kind of come up and grab me, but I just found something that I was more passionate about and I believed really strongly in. So really those years were very foundational for me. Awesome. You met your husband in the collegiate ministry. How did you, how did you meet him? <laughs> well, um, let's see. I, I lived off campus. I'm a year ahead of him in school. So he was a freshman living in the dorms. It was pouring down rain. So I was getting, I was getting ready to walk back to my apartment, but like I said, it was pouring down rain and I saw a friend and he said, Hey, I'll give you a ride. If you can run with me over to the dorms, he said, I've got, there's a guy in my Bible study that I need to give the Bible studies to, to pass out. And so 
that guy was the amazing Brian Banks and he answered the door and he looked fun and he looked good in a pair of jeans. I'm just going to say. And I thought if he's the faithful guy they can entrust to pass out the Bible studies to everybody else, there's got to be some good character in there. So, but it took him a full year to ask me out on a date. So he was a slow moving man, uh, slow, but purposeful. So that's (laughs) that's how we met anyway. He was actually dating a girl in the first Bible study I ever led when we met. So they were dating for us. So he tells everybody I got rid of her. I mean, yeah, he's, <laughs> the story's gotten bigger, like the true fisherman that he is, but <laughs> that's how we met anyway. Then we got, let's see, I drew his name for Secret Saints at Valentine's. So I got to do fun things for him all week long. He says I rigged it. I did not. <laughs> um, and then we were prayer partners. We got put together as prayer partners for a spring break conference that we went to at Glen Airy, the Navigators headquarters in Colorado Springs. And that's the first time actually ever asked me to do anything, which is a hilarious story because we both ended up ripping our ski pants that day. So when we came back at the end of the afternoon from skiing, we both had ripped ski pants. So we made quite an impression. You know, we kind of had to get married then. I mean, you know, of course, that's right. It was a student ministry, you know, anyway. But we've been married 37 years now. Oh, that's so great. And I I want our listeners to know that I have the privilege of going way back with knowing and loving you both. And I have such a debt of gratitude in my heart to all of the sweet memories of (laughs) many, many days of Bible study that I was in the room when you were leading, Vicki. And I was one of those people listening and taking notes and and seeing what does it look like to be a mom following Jesus and a a wife loving her husband. And I was a few steps behind in the road and just taking good notes of what I saw in you and was so blessed by you. And, and, and Brian has been a blessing to Chris and to me. I will never forget that he was one of the men who stepped up to help Chris when he was at a real kind of a a workaholic time Mm -hmm. in his life. And Brian intervened along with some other trusted friends to say, we are going to get in your way and we love you and we're here for you. And you need to see your family as your first ministry. And you, you need to realize that the Lord is using us and your life to say, slow down here. So um, we are big, Brian and Vicki Banks fans. <laughs> well, and that comes right back at you. I mean, you know, then Chris was the youth pastor for both of our kids. They passionately loved him. He met with Parker Weekly during a hugely traumatic time in our family's life. He was one of the only stable forces really for Parker. So, so yeah, it is a mutual admiration society. We, <laughs> we love you guys very much. Oh. Well, I would also like to hear about One of the things that you and Brian have had a passion to do together is to invest in marriages. And I know that you've done that in many seasons and times, but um, would you share with our listeners a little bit about maybe some of those steps along the road that the Lord has shared in your hearts that you have imparted to other couples? 
Well, we definitely have a passion for young married couples. We've actually never even gone to a Sunday school or connection class with people our age, except for when we were first married. Uh, we still work with young couples. Uh, actually, our daughter is one of the young couples that's in our class right now. But yeah, I felt like that it is a real passion of ours. We feel very strongly that marriage is not something that you just stick with, but that it is something that you invest in always mm -hmm. and that we can never learn enough. One of the things I appreciate the most about Brian personally is that even though we've been married 37 years, he's still a student of me. He is constantly studying me. And how do you feel about this? And what, what, why do you think that way? And he, even when he, chooses a gift for me. It's very obvious that he has really tried to think, think about me and what I would like. And he's not a gift giver. So it's not like it's just like what he does, but he has definitely stayed a student of me. So we really, we really appreciate that. We had the benefit of starting our marriage when we were both at a really good place spiritually. We both, we came like, like I said, from the same college ministry. We had the same heart for discipleship, the same heart to lead. I meet so many women all the time who are much more spiritually interested than their husbands. And that's so difficult as a, as a Christian woman who feels like that he's supposed to be the leader, but it's really hard to follow somebody that's not going anywhere. So I, I really appreciate that. But anyway, it has, it's been a passion. We taught engaged and young married couples, our nearly newlywed class, we called it, where you were had to be engaged or just barely married. And we did that gosh, I don't know, it seems like a couple of decades, but there was probably at least 15 years where we taught only marriage material exclusively. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, it's a passion of ours. Love it. It's amazing. <laughs> and we've had close friends get divorced, you know, years ago, earlier on in our marriage, and it was real heartbreaking. And I'd say that only kind of, you know, increased our passion for it, that it's not something we can, uh, we can get lackadaisical about. I mean, this is, this is your person. You know what? Those kids that seem all consuming in your life, they're supposed to leave your house, but your mate is not. You know? So you, we've got it. We feel very passionate. You need to keep investing in that relationship and give it priority. And that's a really difficult thing. And as women get busier and work outside the home and everything else, I just think it gets easier and easier to to make uh, allowances for your marriage. You know, you're giving what you have to your kids and, and, and we do need to prioritize our children, but, but not over our spouse. And so we've kind of seen the damage that that causes and so feel very strongly about marriage. Talk a little bit about, more about that, about the damage that that can cause. Well, for sure, you know, there's this, I mean, it's so easy to get into the, okay, you take him, I'll take her. Um, you know, I'm going to do my thing with my friends. You do your things. I'm overwhelmed with my job. You're overwhelmed with your job. And, and you don't even realize it, but before long, you're not connecting with one another. You're just kind of living in the same house. And this, this thing happens with a lot of couples around 25 years or so, kind of depending on how long they've been married when children come into the into play. But when your kids start getting older and they start, you know, developing their own lives and everything, and they're getting ready to leave the house, so often then they, you know, couples realize we really don't have anything in common anymore. 
we no longer do the hobbies together that we did when we were dating or pre-kids, you know, because we've been just doing kids activities and work stuff and focusing on building our careers and our platforms. And all of a sudden you've got this one person that you're sitting at the dinner table with and you've really not had a decent conversation in a long time. You've not been on vacation just alone together. You've not spent a week alone together in a long time. And so you've lost kind of that friendship base. You know, one of my favorite marriage books is Willard Harley's His Needs, Her Needs. And it's it's an older book now, but he says something in it that I've never been able to forget. He kind of talks about the five basic needs of men and the five basic needs of women. And of course, you know, there are going to be some of us that are going to vary, but for the most part, I think it's spot on. But when he's talking about the needs of a man, one of them is for a recreational companion. And I remember reading it and thinking, well, that sounds really weird. That doesn't sound really spiritual. But I remember what he said. What he said is because we equate the positive feelings we have with play with the person that we're playing with. So if you're no longer playing together and doing things together, it doesn't mean you have to do everything together, but if you're not doing any of those, you lose that positive you know, connection and that positive feeling you have. And so I remember a friend asking me years ago, what do you and Brian do when you go out of town together? You know, I don't, we don't even, we don't enjoy anything the same. We don't like the same movies. We don't like, well, they're divorced now, you know? So you know, you just got to keep, you, you just got to keep trying uh, and you've got to keep finding some way, something that you can stay connected to. And you got to still keep talking. Life is just so full now, especially here in the West that, you know, our calendars are full, our heads are full, our phones are, you know, dinging with reminders, you know, our, it's just, there's always this input. And so it, I think it's just gotten more difficult just to set and intentionally connect with this one person that you've pledged your entire future to for crying out loud. But, but it's just too easy to, it's just too easy to kind of fall apart without meaning to, you know, mm -hmm. not because you're being hateful or it's just easy to grow distant and to, to lose that sense of friendship. That's such a great foundation. So true. A quote that Chris has said a hundred times, if he has said it once, is that great marriages don't happen by accident. Great marriages happen on purpose. Absolutely. And, right, yeah. right. Willard Harley says the couple that plays together stays together, you know. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, another thing that I've admired in seeing how you and Brian have chosen to live your lives, raise your children, you have two very different kids. <laughs> They're very opposite in personality and taste and just, just what they wanted to do. And so I know that that's really going to ring true with a lot of our listeners. So I know it's been, you know, they're grown and they're living their lives married and raising kids now, but I know it probably doesn't seem like that long ago they were running around in your house. So what are some of the things you look back and either you wish you had known to do differently, or you're so glad you did with just how you raised them and how you supported them and, and brought them up to love the Lord and just value who they are. So I really, I'd love to hear from you about that. Wow. Um, that's kind of loaded. That's a big conversation just <laughs> because they are very different. Um, 
I think one of the real tricks to parenting, I'm a quality time girl. And so it was very important to me that both of my children felt enjoyed by me, that they didn't just feel parented, that they didn't feel just bossed around, but that they felt enjoyed and they felt the space to kind of be who they were. And when one of them is so different than you are, you have to, I mean, that's, that was constantly in my head. You know, uh, I had this daughter who in a lot of ways I kind of, I tracked with, she's all her emotions were on her face. I always knew what she was thinking. And then I had this son who's like a wild card. He's like in his head. You don't know. He doesn't feel the need to say all his thoughts. Uh, he doesn't enter a room talking. Now, when the boy talks, the man can chat. But, but I just always wanted him to feel like there's, you don't have to be like her. There's no reason for you to be a student officer if, if that's not what you're into. Let's, let's find what works for you. And he loved animals, you know, so we figured out, you know, I figured out how to hook him up with the Oklahoma City Zoo and learned about a junior curator program that was there. And he passionately loved it. Everything my daughter did involved school and a group of people. He's totally different. Well, you know, God makes us different on purpose. So we know that in our heads, but I do think it's a little more challenging when it comes to your own children. Um, we want to remake them. We want them not to have to go through some of the same issues we have. Uh, you know, so I do think that's a little bit of a challenge. So I think the big thing is really being a student of your kids, trying to figure out what makes them tick, what making sure they know that it's okay to be unique and individual and, and celebrating that. I would say the best thing probably what is not something that Brian and I did personally, but it just happens to be the child that we had first. <laughs> and that is that, because there was a time I wondered, will they even be close when they grow up and get older? Cause they're so different, but Fortunately, about the time my daughter was in high school, they were close when they were, you know, little for sure. But about the time she got into high school, she just made it her mission to go after her brother. And she saw that he didn't, he wasn't really connecting with people in his grade. And, and she flat went after him. And when she went to college, she it was, you know, OU's about 45 minutes away from where we live. She would call him and say, hey, you know, baseball team's playing on Friday. It's, you know, 25 cent hot dogs. If you want to drive up here, you know, we'll buy you hot dogs. And when she came home and brought her friends home, they included him. He always did well with older people, which is interesting because he was young for his grade. Had I held him back like other people do, I think he would have really had difficulty, but but they just really, they included him. So I think a huge portion of their deep friendship now and during this pandemic year, they talk on the phone about an hour every week. Um, but there, you know, there was that little window of time when he was kind of late elementary, she was early middle school that I wondered if they would really have a real adult connection. You know, I thought, what do you do with the brother? I just have a sister, you know, I thought, what do you do with the brother when you get older? But they're, they're very close different, but very close, but they're really, they're kind of fascinated with the way each other works. So I'm, I'm happy about that. So I don't know if we really facilitated that or not, but I think I just got really fortunate to be honest. Yeah. Well, it's true that there, there isn't going to be in any family, one way to raise 
every you know what I mean every single child is going to have their own differences and how you discipline how you talk with them all that it's going to be unique because Mm -hmm. they're all so unique Mm -hmm. but yeah Yeah. and I think Robin and I can both relate to that being older sisters and having sisters absolutely um and then having children who have having girls and then they have brothers Mm -hmm. yeah you kind of think well, I had a younger sister. How's that going to work? And then they have this younger brother and there's just this special connection. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm a firstborn and I have one sister too. So that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, all three of us. Pretty cool. Right. <laughs> well, I would love to lead our conversation into your afraid not time that you're going to share with us. And okay. we're grateful that you've um, accepted this invitation to come on the show and to just let this be, um, we're hoping that our listeners will relate and, and hear in your story, an example of how God was there for you and he got you through the dark time and he's going to be there for them too. So please do share with us. All right. Well, I have lived a couple of birthdays. So there have been a couple of difficult seasons and things that we faced. Um, I would say the, though it's pretty easy to separate out the most difficult. So probably about 2000, 2002, I started experiencing a lot of physical pain. And for about 16 years, I was a chronic pain patient, meaning I, I had pain every single day of my life. Um, tried everything under the sun to deal with that. A couple trips to John Hopkins, um, multiple doctors, specialists, injections. I mean, you name it, traction, you name it, we tried it. It's an issue with my spine, um, neck, and my back. And basically the three lower vertebrae in my neck are pretty much just right on top of each other. And they have been for quite some time. So I was so young, they really didn't want to do surgery. They really felt like it would just continue to set me up. And, you know, they just kept saying, as long as you can hold out, if you can hang on to your sanity for as long as possible, let's do. So I was, you know, about five pain pills a day. That was my, that was my maintenance regime. And that includes a narcotic. So that was definitely, that's definitely a challenge. And we don't know why, but for some glorious, gracious reason, about two years ago, suddenly God just lifted that. And I don't even have a prescription for pain medicine anymore. It's absolutely miraculous. So I learned a lot, learned a lot through that season. I don't think anybody can understand somebody in physical pain unless they have lived there. It it really is it colors your world. It colors your perspective. Uh, it's really difficult just to be pleasant. I mean, much less to run hard after God and to intentionally invest in other people. So that's definitely a challenge, but bigger, you know, the biggest thing for me, the most dramatic was in 2006, my daughter, my firstborn was a senior in high school. She was a vocalist. She was a class officer and So I had taken the year off of speaking, you know, it's my firstborn senior year. I don't really know what else coming up, but I knew she would be in the middle of it. And I didn't want to find myself, you know, speaking in Washington when she was, you know, on a stage performing somewhere. So I'd taken the year off and we were having, I mean, our family was just really having a great year, just a good time together. I mean, I would say as 
probably the sweetest time in life. And then we absolutely got waylaid in April of that year. So the day before she turned 18 years old, well, I should say in December of that year, Brian's mother had gone into the hospital the day after Christmas and really ill. Um, she's had poor health her all her life. And But we had said, by the time we got to April, we had already said goodbye to her several times. She never got out of the hospital. She'd been there for four years. And his grandfather was really going downhill. Both his parents are only children. So we were helping care for him along with Brian's sister and, and brother-in-law. And so there was a lot of suffering that we were watching going on. You know, he had cancer, uh, really difficult. And so he was suffering. She was suffering really grim. And I was having a conversation with my mother the day before my daughter turned 18 and she had just had a knee surgery, a common surgery. People have millions of them have every day. She was doing just great. And in the middle of a conversation, literally about makeup, she just quit talking and got this vacant look on her face. And, um, she was still in the hospital from after surgery. And so, I mean, it seemed like every medical professional ran into her room at that point. And it was like a, you know, full force hurricane that happened and they're throwing things around and she passed away. I, I, I mean, I was alone with her having a conversation. She was perfectly fine asking me if I was doing anything new to my makeup, commenting on, you know, how I looked and suddenly she quit talking and that was it. One week later, my mother-in-law passed away. So in one week, we lost both of our mothers. And this was two months after we had lost his grandfather, the patriarch in our family, who I named my son after because he is so significant in my life. We are from very small families. So you take three people out in a two-month period. Um, I wrote all the obituaries. You know, my son's first three funerals, he carried a casket. My, he was 14 years old. Um, my, my daughter sang, my husband ordered the caskets. When he called to order the third casket, they gave him a discount because they felt so bad. They were like, Mr. Banks, is this really you calling us back again? And so anyway, needless to say, that was an incredibly difficult season. And this is also when I'm getting ready to launch my first child from my home. You know, I'm, you know, the empty nest is going to start. And I couldn't even think about that. People kept saying, Oh, how are you doing with Casey graduating? I can't imagine. I know you're both so close. And I just kept thinking, my mother's gone forever, you know, forever. That's all I could. I couldn't get my head around that. Anyway, so I think that first year was probably more like typical grief. There, I know there's really not such a thing, but you have to do all the horrible first, you know, for the first time, the constant anniversaries, the constant dealing with everything, the, the horrendous holidays, the, you know, just think about that first mother's day and there's no mamas, mm. you know, you're 45 years old and suddenly you're the head mama, you know, in the family. And it's like, what? <laughs> uh, anyway, so it was, it was really, it was very difficult, but about a year and a half, I thought I kind of felt a lifting and I thought, you know what, I think I'm going to be okay. And this was the first of December and I kind of felt like doing some Christmas decorating and I thought yeah I think I'm really going to be okay and so I remember vividly I went to bed that night I laid my head on the table and on, on the pillow and something happened that 
I still can't come up with words to explain how dramatic it was, which is obviously I'm a wordy girl and I'm a chatty girl. My degree's in interpersonal communication. I speak, I write, this is what I do. It's what I bring to the table, right? But I still can't explain how dramatic it sounds without making me sound like an absolute nutcase, like straight out of, you know, this present darkness by Frank Peretti's, you know, fiction book or something. But I literally laid down and all of a sudden this oppressive, heavy, weighty darkness just came on me like a full metal jacket. I mean, I felt like I was like in quicksand and I couldn't breathe and I couldn't get out. And I, I didn't know what it was. I'd never experienced anything like that before. And what happened after that threw me in a major tailspin. And, and you got to realize that at this point, I've been leading weekly Bible studies and discipling women for 25 years. I mean, I have been hard in the word, hard following after God. And suddenly I can't even read to focus. I was having panic attacks, things I had didn't even have a frame of reference for before that time, because I just kept this video kept playing in my mind that everybody I love is going to die. They're going to die. They're going to die. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be alone. And I just, I couldn't, I, I mean, it, it, it was incessant and it was weighty and this, this hopelessness, this darkness. And I mean, Robin, you know, my personality, that is not my general personality, but I flat could not see around it. I walked <laughs> around the house in a robe, holding Bible verses, reading them. They were taped on my mirrors. They were everywhere. I could not quit crying constantly was going to the bathroom, you know, because I was in tears I've got a 15 year old and an 18 year old, a son who is very much attuned to my emotions and watching me all the time. I knew they were frightened for me. My husband was scared to death. And it was when you, when you mentioned the word, when we had talked earlier, afraid not a season where you felt like you were hanging by a thread. Right. It was like a thread is about all I felt like I had. I knew God was big enough to hold me, but what I didn't know is if I would let him. And, and that was very frightening for me. I was scared for my marriage. I've never been scared in my life for my marriage, but the, what do you do? You know, isn't it supposed to be the Ecclesiastics thing when one falls down, the other lifts, you know, the other one up, what happens when you both go down in the same week, you know, when you're both grieving massively, when you're both trying to, and you've got kids that are grieving massively and they're teenagers, you know, mm -hmm. so it's not all public and you got to get in there, you know, this is impacting how they feel about God, but I could hardly talk without crying. I could hardly talk about anything meaningful. So what that also meant is that for quite some time, I really even lost the ministry that I had. I couldn't speak. I couldn't teach because I couldn't talk about anything meaningful without crying. I mean, it was so humbling, so humiliating on this side of it. Many, many years past, I can say that I am deeply grateful for what I learned. There is an empathy that I have that I never had a clue for. I felt bad for people that went through difficult things, but now I feel what they feel, you know, I hear somebody loses somebody immediately. And I, you know, I'm on my knees praying, 
I am sending the devotion book that helped, you know, keep me sane. I am, I mean, I'm fighting for them. I'm checking up on them. Um, and so often we think well, if somebody looks okay on the outside, yeah, she, she seems to be doing fine. And I don't know how many times I have said she is not doing fine. She cannot be doing fine. <laughs> and even if she is fine, when you saw her, the 30 minutes you saw her last night, she may be in the depth today, you know? So if there is a significant trauma that's happened, you can't just, you can't just make yourself feel better by saying, well, she looked good. So she must be doing okay. No, you got to get in there and fight for those people. I mean, I go to funerals and I write down the birthdays of the people who pass away. So I remember to pray for the people who are still here because I know what that day means for them. You know, Christmas comes, Mother's Day comes, Father's Day comes. I just, I see things differently. I know God differently. I thought I knew him really intimately then, didn't hold a candle to what I know now. I know he really can. He really is enough. I mean, he really can be enough. Um, so definitely a difficult season, um, hard one, compassion, um, hard one, empathy. You know, I heard women talk before about anxiety and depression and, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was terrible that they had those feelings. And I think I might've been quicker just to try to slap a Bible verse on it. I'm not slapping a Bible verse on it today, you know, and I, I will be emotionally available. I'll cry with you. If you need somebody to cry with you, I'll just sit and listen. Um, I'm not uncomfortable with that. I know what it feels like to grasp for straws. And then about a year after both our mothers passed away, so I live within 15 minutes of two dads, right? Who have suddenly become widowers. And my dad was a mess. You know, he, uh, my mother was his person. He's a very quiet, introverted man. And they were high school sweethearts and he could hardly see straight. So I really kind of feared for his life, even going to his house to see him. I remember times being concerned about opening the door and walking in. I'm thinking, I know he's got guns in the house. You know, he used to be a hunter a long time ago. And, but about a year, a little over a year after she passed away, then he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So then we had a good four years um, where my sister and I went with him to every chemo treatment, every doctor's visit, um, went through all the things of getting everything turned over into our names while he's still living, you know, and he's, you know, passing off the, the um, power of attorney and the, uh, so went through just really, really some difficult years of very frightening, lonely, um, difficult years, definitely. And, um, so deeply grateful that even when I couldn't even focus to read, God just continually brought his word back to me. You know, I published a book in 2002 called uh, Sharing His Secrets. And the subtitle is Intimate Insights from the Women Who Knew Jesus. And every chapter deals with the face-to-face -face conversation Jesus had with the woman while he was on earth. And so, so that book came out in 2002. So for four years, I had traveled twice a month, mostly retreat speaking, talking about Mary and Martha of Bethany and how they responded when they were brutally disappointed in God because he didn't show up early and save his brother before he died. And I told women all around the United States, what did they do? They ran to Jesus and not away. That's what you need to do when the going gets tough. And so when I couldn't even focus, God would say, 
what about Mary and Martha? I mean, I about killed myself doing that research. I was so overwhelmed with the idea that I was interpreting scripture in print, you know? And so, I mean, I, I was deep into that research. Um, uh, Mary Magdalene, you know, I don't know how long I studied that woman and she's mentioned 14 times in scripture by name. And so there's quite a bit of material on her. And so I read about, you know, what she did when the going got tough, you know, when, everybody, the disciples all vamoosed and are all over the place. She is close enough at the cross to hear him say to his mother, you know, this is your son now, John, John, please take care of my mom. I mean, she's close enough to hear him. She stays to watch where they lay him. I mean, the last available moment before Sabbath, when they've got to get in their doors and lock the place down, she is watching to see where they lay him. And then the first available moment for her to get up and get out after Sabbath, scripture says, while it was still dark outside, she is back there at the tomb. And so no matter how difficult things got, she, she kept running to him. She kept searching for him. And so those, those things I had studied for so long that I thought I had studied for other people to help them in their walk with God, he just kept flooding my mind and reminding me of, and it literally scripture is the single solitary thing that saved me. Um, absolutely. Um, like I said, there were some passages that there's no telling how many times I quoted them. I wore them slick, but it was really, it was the promises of his word. You know, Romans 15, four says that the things that were written in earlier times were written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I knew I had hope because I knew Jesus was in me. So I knew I took hope everywhere I went, but for the life of it, I did not life of me. I did not feel hope. I only felt darkness and heaviness and impending death and doom. And, um, but, but that scripture kept reminding me, here's where it is. You know, every time you start to lose it, you go back there. Psalm 27, 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And it was such a reminder that you don't have to wait till heaven. <laughs> There's goodness still here. And he really challenged me to open my eyes and to look for beauty and to look for good. Um, and I just purposely began doing that whole Philippians 4, 6, and 7, when it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And whenever that video would start playing in my head of I'm going to have to keep doing this. I can't keep saying goodbye to people I love. I, I would just start listing literally out loud everything I could think of to be thankful for. And it is true. When you are focusing on what there is to be thankful for, you can always find something to thank God for. And when you're focusing on that, you can't focus on the other. So you have to keep doing it. It's not like I just, you know, made my little list once and, it, and I was good to go then, you know, forevermore. No, I had to keep thanking him. I just heard Johnny Erickson Tata talk this last weekend. Good gosh almighty. 
And she talked about that. Um, her and Catherine Wolf were talking about preaching to your own heart. And Johnny said, you know, what do you do when those, you know, the goads of life keep coming after you? And she said, you start mouthing your thanks. And if you mouth it long enough, she said, sooner or later, God will reward you with the feeling of gratitude. You know, it might not be where you start, but if you are faithful to keep doing it, um, you will start to see things differently and you will, you will, it'll become easier to see the light. But it, it is, it is a real discipline. It was for me, it was a huge discipline. Um, and it was not, it was not a short lived teachable moment for me. Um, it was, it was hard fought. Is there a specific turning point? Was there a specific event or thought that came along that kind of changed things or was it just a gradual for the most part, I would say it was gradual. It was continually running to scripture. I mean, I literally went to my computer and on a Bible study program that I use, uh, actually I, Bible study tools is the website that I study my Bible on most often. And I just went to the concordance, looked up the word hope. I printed out every single word on hope and I kept a copy in my purse at all times. Um, I was constantly looking over those verses. So I think part of that was gradual. I do remember one, one kind of an aha moment. I went to, so my friend, Sue Ellen Ferguson, Robin, you know, Sue. Love she was, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, she used to be the women's ministry director at council road and she has a very good relationship with a man named Bob Willis, who was a hospice counselor here in Oklahoma city. And she used to bring him in to do grief counseling at our church. And, um, so when I got to where I, I literally couldn't catch my breath without crying, I made two calls to two women that you both know and admire. One was to Sue Ellen, the other was to Debbie Jordan. They were both women who I had seen fight to fight through horrific circumstances to hold on to hope. And I had been able to watch them do that as a young woman. I had heard Debbie say that God's big enough to handle my hard questions, run to him with them. So when the going got, when I got panicky about my own self, I called both of them, not girlfriends my age. I called both of them and I said, I need help and I need you two to pray. And because I knew they would, they would not forget me. Well, Sue Ellen actually made an appointment for the, for me with the hospice counselor. She said, I'm gonna call Bob for you while I was with her in her office. She called him, my friend Vicki needs to come see you. Would you please make room for her? Anyway, I remember going to see him and um, he said, you know how when you wake up in the middle of the night and uh, you, you need a drink of water. So you get out of your bed, but you don't turn the lights on, he said. Because you know, you know your house, you know where you're going. So you, you go to get your drink of water. He said, but what happens if you stub your toe? And I said, <gasps> I said, immediately you hold your breath. And he said, yes. He said, why do you do that? I said, because I know it's going to hurt. And he said, that's what you're doing. Because I told him, I said, I can't even, I can't even breathe right. I kept realizing that my breath was running really, really fast. And, and then, like I said, there were these panic attack incidences. And he said, you are waiting for the other shoe to drop. He said, you have been through successive trauma. And so your body is thinking something else is coming. And I don't know what it was. It sounds very simplistic, but there was something about just giving a name 
to how I felt and why I felt it. Because in my rational mind, I know that that's not how life just continues. It's not like every week you have a new trauma. I know tough things continue to happen, but it's, it's not like horrific things continue to happen. You know, you're not going to carry three more caskets, you know, this past year, probably you're, um, but there was something about him naming that. And it made me realize, oh, that's what I'm doing. And I do think that I, you know, I started, you know, deep breathing, I'm slow breathing. I knew that from being a speaker anyway, anytime the heart starts to go really strong is just to take some long, slow, deep breaths. But so Jill, I think it's, I think part of it was probably gradual. It was accumulation of stuff and of just all that word really working its way in my head and my heart and starting to understand a little bit about what I was feeling. Like I said, I didn't know anything about depression or anything like that. And I started reading a little series on grief that a woman from our church sent to me, um, Insight for Living, they're by Doug Manning. They're very short. So when you are grieving, it's very hard to concentrate. So a griever can't, they're, they're not gonna read a 300 page book on grief. Um, you know, they don't, they don't have that kind of attention span at that moment, not when they're heavy into it, but these were small, more like kind of almost like booklets um, really. And, but I remember the first one I opened and it said, you are not losing your mind. And I thought, oh my gosh, thank goodness, you know, <laughs> he, he knows, because I thought this was so different than my normal right. mode. I thought I'm losing my mind. I'm going to go down. I'm going to embarrass God. This woman who's been on the forefront teaching people how to connect the dots between God's word and his everyday life. I'm going to go down. Everybody's going to think this is all a fraud. It's not big enough to help you. You know, I'm going to take all sorts of people down with me. Then I feel the weight and the guilt about that. I was beating myself up. Maybe God thinks I'm not doing grief well. I mean, I just got really in the toolies and things that it's so easy now to see straight, you know, through and I could help somebody else see, but in my own desperate moment, it was really difficult. But there were several things that I read in that little booklet, or it's a series, you get like one every three months, like the first year after you lose somebody. And it was practical, it was manageable, and it just made me feel okay. And then my husband's mentor gave me a devotion book, which I normally don't read devotion books. Um, it's just not the way I normally do my devotional time with God, but there was a book called, um, I think it's through a season of grief and it is a one year devotion. It's the only one like it that I know it's actually put out by grief share, I think is the group that does it. And it was just a little snippet every day so I could follow with it, but they are all written by grievers. They're all written by people who have deeply grieved. And it just made me feel understood and quite and not quite so alone so it's probably a mass accumulation of, of scripture of time of the talk with bob willis of these practical but but doable things that i could read that didn't require great amounts of time or intention um but it it, it was wild it did take a while no, I totally understand that when i was in my 20s i was i had some panic attacks and stuff and Ruth Ann Cahill. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to her a little bit and she, I kind of grown up going to her mm -hmm. about the things and she had kind of said, it's normal. You're fine. Mm -hmm. And it made them 
stop because I think in the middle of panic attacks, you start thinking that like I'm crazy oh gosh, yeah. and it just exacerbates it. And so for her to say, you're normal, nothing's wrong with you. You're fine. It kind of made me go, this is okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of helped. It I will start. be okay. <laughs> yeah. I remember telling Satan one day I walked in the bathroom in the back of my house, the family was all in the living room and we were having a great time one evening. And all of a sudden I just felt all that wash over me and and was about to burst into tears. And I got up, I went to the bathroom. And when I walked into my restroom, I saw you walk in facing the big mirror and I saw the t-shirt I had on. It's the only t-shirt I've ever bought at a conference, at a, uh, at a concert. It was a Jeremy Camp t-shirt. And it said, I will walk by faith, even if I cannot see. And I literally stopped in the bathroom. I looked down at the floor and I said, Satan, I know I look like a mess. I sound like a mess, but here's what you can trust. I will be okay because there is a great big God who is on my side and I do know who to turn to. And I know right now I look like a lunatic, but I will be okay. I will walk by faith. Uh, yeah, sometimes you, you do. You got to preach to yourself. There's also a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And I think yes. there's trigger points in us that when happen, mm-hmm. our body just goes into that natural mode of panic mm-hmm. and wherever that is in our body. And we just kind of don't know what to do with it. And our body just naturally goes into panic wherever that is. Yes. Where it is. I just heard uh, Dr. Anita Phillips talking at the IF Gathering Conference, and she was talking about trauma, and she said that she was talking about everything that's happened this last year, and she said, we are coming up on all the first anniversaries of that, and she said, the, she said, those are all triggers for the body. The body knows it even when our heads aren't conscious of it, and they will mourn those triggers and those reminders, <clears throat> even when we don't know why we're feeling the way we are, maybe, but that just what you said, yeah, that the there's something weird that the body, the body gets it, it remembers. Yeah. Hmm. I liked what you said, Vicki, of having gone through what you have gone through has been a hard one empathy and compassion that you have, and that you even take note of loved ones birthdays mm-hmm. you take note you remember to pray that's a big tip for every one of us listening mm-hmm. that we know people that are in a storm we may mm-hmm. be in a storm all mm-hmm. of us mm-hmm. so truly noticing those details mm-hmm. is one way to meet a need that is something they may not even say out loud but mm-hmm. if we're paying attention We can be somebody who's really expressing to them, you are seen, you are loved. And maybe God uses us to be his hands and feet. Say, see, I see you. Mm -hmm. I see you. Absolutely. For crying out loud, let's not waste that pain. You know, let's Mm -hmm. eke out any possible good lesson we can get from that. And let's, let's be part of it being redeemed. Um, Let's use it. You know, let's use it to not just, crawl in our own corners and feel bad about our own stuff, but let's use it to name our stuff, deal with our stuff, and then turn around and be watching out for everybody else. There's a reason God has us in community. There's a reason why we have so 
we have had such huge ramifications this past year of not being in community because this pandemic, you know, you saw what distance did. Um, you saw the breakdown, even in the church, what happens when you're not getting ready, when you're not getting together regularly, when you're not uh, meeting and praying together and those things, you know, we, we feel it. We start to feel on the outskirts. It becomes harder to then get back involved and to get vulnerable again. It's just, it just gets easier to draw on our own little shell. And yeah, that's that. I mean, it, yeah, there's a reason God has left us here on this earth together and that we're not all on our own little mount, you know? So yeah, let's, let's use it. Let's not waste the pain. That's right. Wow. So true. So you've given us several resources of books for people. Do you have anything extra podcasts or other books that you would recommend for people going through grief or um, going through some kind of trauma? Um, let's see. I mentioned the Insight for Living books by Doug Manning. I mentioned the book Through a Season of Grief, the devotional book. Those were both very helpful. There's a lot of great resources. And I did end up reading a lot of things, but those are the those are the practical, tangible, doable things that first stood out to me. Um, Chris Robin's husband wrote a, a sweet guide for like, um, I remember talking with him about, uh, teenagers and isn't that what he wrote his doctorate dissertation on helping yes. uh, people go through grief, like at the loss of a teenager and stuff. I didn't realize that grief, I didn't realize how personal it was. And I didn't realize how, how huge it was. You know, I realize now looking back. I also was suffering the grief of losing a ministry. You know, uh, that was such a significant part of who I was and my purpose. What I didn't mention is during the four years that my dad had cancer, both our family pets died. I mean, you know, there was like, it was literally uh, my best friend, Jetta called me Job. I mean, it was like, every time I turned around, something was happening to the point that everybody around us was going good grief, what is going on with your family? Um, so it wasn't just us that thought it was dramatic. Everybody looking at us thought it was dramatic too. So I'd say those things were super helpful. I would very much recommend um, uh, counseling, hospice counselors. Um, when my dad was on hospice, his nurse was such a gift to us. You know, take advantage of those people that just know more about those things than we do. I went to the grief recovery classes at our church that Bob Willis taught, um, didn't want to go, but, but went and was so grateful, so grateful that I did. So whatever it is, you know, for you, but, um, I heard somebody also say at the if gathering conference last weekend that, um, trauma doesn't end when the trauma ends. Trauma only ends when we name it and when we work through it. So just because the tough event might've happened years ago, if you've never dealt with it, because you don't wanna think about it, because you don't wanna be sad, because you don't wanna talk about it, because you don't think the people in your life um, can handle any more sadness and any more words from you, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get to healing. You're gonna miss it. And so 
you know, I do think, and I do think that's one of the things that helped me. Mine was very messy, but because it was so messy, I worked through it. It was, it was very purposeful. And I think that's that again, trauma doesn't end when you, when, when the, ends. when the event ends, the traumatic mm-hmm. event ends, a, a death an abuse, uh, a hurt, uh, whatever. It yeah. doesn't end when the event ends. It only, it only ends when we name it. And then when we deal with it and, um, that was also from Dr. Anita Phillips. But so, so yeah, I would just really recommend talking to your people and talking until someone listens. If nobody seems to get that I'm dying on the vine here, you find somebody that will. And that may mean you go outside of your friend group, but you find somebody, you find a warrior woman who you know will flat get on her face before God and will not get up until she knows you're okay somebody who's going to call you and check on you. Um, you, you find professionals that will help you. Um, everybody knows somebody, um, but you, you call your pastor and you say, who would you recommend that I talk to? Um, is there, is there a woman in the church that you would recommend that I call? I've learned about being a women's minister that we all have our stuff. I remember years ago, a woman saying, you know, in the congregation saying, you know, I don't know if you ever come across this, but if you ever have somebody that like has a parent with Alzheimer's or something, she said, I cared for my mom for years when she had that. Um, if you ever, if they, you know, ever know somebody who just needs someone to talk to who understands, you know, she's not a counselor. She's not going to do therapy. She knows she doesn't have those skills, but sometimes you just need that entrance person that will just sit and listen. And sometimes a person who's really invested in your life, that's hard for them to do. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's natural, but sometimes, sometimes it's difficult. Um, and so, but, but you, you keep working till you find somebody who will listen. And if it's, like I said, a hospice counselor, if it's a, a therapist, a Christian counselor, a psychologist, whatever, but let's deal with our stuff so that we can experience the fullness of God. And so we can still be used by him. You know, I definitely believe that trauma, shame, grief, these are all tools in Satan's hands to keep us out of the game, to keep us out of a vibrant Christian walk, to make us look like knowing God is not enough, um, to make us feel like he really is not enough. And so let's flip that script on him because that's not scriptural at all. But we sometimes live like it is, you know, like these things are just too big. This is too much. and, and that's, um, you know, that's to all of our own detriment for sure. Well, something you said that I 100% agree with is that the way that you used scripture as your weapon, mm-hmm. that was how you got through. And I just see that mm-hmm. is exactly what the Lord is wanting for me to take home from this mm-hmm. conversation and for all these listeners out here that his word is a weapon, mm-hmm. our offensive weapon against Satan. Like you said in that night, you know, mm-hmm. Satan, I know that you <laughs> may think I'm a mess right now, but I know my God is going to win. And, that's, um, that's Ephesians six. I mean, there's a reason it's called the sword of the spirit, you know, exactly. um, we got to use it to slice and dice some really bad yes. thinking <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, Vicki, you've given us an armory of great tools tonight, treasures of scripture and awesome resources and fantastic encouragement, 
for from your own time of walking through grief. And I just thank you for being here with us, for sharing your story with us and letting the Lord use your story tonight. Thank you so much. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed being here. Thank you. Everyone, we're so happy you were listening today to this conversation that Jill and I shared with Vicki. And there are some amazing treasures we can be reminded of from this conversation. The main one that I'm really grabbing today is that the treasure of scripture is available to all of us. And Vicki is such a great example of spending her lifetime pouring her heart into the Word of God and letting the Word of God impact her, memorizing it, studying it. And when that hard time and that season of a horrendous grief struck that her family, she had scripture to cling to. And she said that that's really what helped her survive it. And that's, that alone is her main thing that helped her survive it, just God's Word. And so I just am reminded we need that. And so whether you're in a time today of being in a storm or not, this is the time we need scripture. And we need to put God's word in our hearts so we're ready for those times that we never know when they're coming. We never know when that terrible phone call is coming. We don't know, but we we have today to be putting God's word in our heart and just building our life in that's what I'm taking mostly from this conversation today. We also talked a lot about there's a reason God has us in community. We need to make sure that we're reaching out when we're in grief to people, to our friends, to people in our church body, to um, counselors. Um, grief is personal. Trauma doesn't end when it ends. Trauma only ends when we have named it and deal with it. So we may need to make sure that we understand what the trauma is, we name it, and we find people that can help us in our community to deal with it. So that's vital when we're dealing with grief or any kind of trauma, that we find people in community that can walk us through that with us. So thank you so much for being with us today. Um, if you will rate and review and subscribe, tell a friend about the podcast. If you have somebody that you know that's dealing with grief or um, just any kind of trauma, share this with them and um, we would love for them to listen. So we hope that you enjoyed this conversation today and we will be back in your earbuds in two weeks from now. Bye everyone. Thank you.